Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Have I got this straight, Jonesy? A $40 million computer tells you you're chasing an earthquake, but you don't believe it, and you come up with this on your own? Uh That had a direct bearing to our topic today. And that topic would be? Sonar. Uh Sound, navigation, and ranging. Well... That uh, pretty much covers it. Yeah. So well, that's exactly what it is. It's yeah. one of those nice, uh, nice words that sort of covers it. So yeah, no, it's a, it's it's very it's very much exactly what it sounds like. It's using sound to navigate on a, and to uh, to find the distance from other objects. Yeah, as it turns out, there are a lot of ways to use sonar. Um, yeah. And we'll get into that uh, in a minute. But there are also a lot of different types of applications, uh, different ways. To use it as in like uh, different kinds of equipment that that can be used to find depth and identify things in the water, and uh, even map the seafloor if you want to do that. Yep, and uh, actually, the you know we're not the only ones to to use sonar. 
Not by a long shot. True. Dolphins and whales use it, yes, as I mean, do other animals. Yes, that would be a echolocation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's what the sonar is based off of. It's the idea of the way sound travels. And so if you sound travels in waves, it's a it's mm-hmm. actually a physical uh, thing. It's you know, we don't see it, but it is a physical effect. When you make a sound, you are causing stuff to bang against each other. That sound so so scientific. It's true though. That's true. So when sound travels, it's really lots of air molecules That's bouncing true. against each other until, uh, well, really just until it disperses. Mm-hmm. So it keeps on going. I mean, uh, and we detect sound, of course, through hearing, but there are other ways to detect it. There, there are sounds that are outside of our range of hearing that we can sense. Mm-hmm. Like there's some that are so low that you know you can't hear it, but you can feel it. You yes. get that thrumming feeling. Thrum, um, thrum, thrum. And when sound hits a really solid object, Mm -hmm. uh, it bounces. It it refracts off. Some of it reflects back. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's where we get the whole echo uh, effect. So when you're in the right kind of uh, environment and you speak and you hear that echo, that's those sound waves bouncing back and coming back to you. Well, you can use this to find your way around an environment. All right. Well, um... So where does sonar come from then? We have to figure out exactly uh, really when that all started taking place. And uh, I think it was really probably, I mean, people had been doing it for a long time. Yeah. You could you could identify things in, under the surface of the water, but why are you grinning at me? Because like my favorite man of all time did some experiments with listening to sound through water. Okay. Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> We just nice. finished talking about him a second ago, which uh, I'll try and make sure that the podcast published in the right order. But no, Leonardo da Vinci, back in uh, 1490, experimented with with listening to sounds through water. He would insert a tube into uh, into water mm-hmm. and put his ear to the tube. Like a straw? Yeah, pretty much like a straw, larger than a straw. Mr. Da Vinci, why are you listening to your drink? <laughs> he had a drinking problem. So... Uh, but yeah, he would use this to to kind of listen to uh, to the to noises with the idea that if you could create the right system, you mm-hmm. would be able to detect when things were approaching through the water. Right now, during Da Vinci's time, this wasn't really that big a problem. Things usually approached on the water, and if they were in the water, they weren't really something you needed to worry about. <laughs> you know, the uh uh, frogmen yeah, of his day, not not so effective. But uh, getting all the way up to the 18th or the 19th century, rather the 1800s, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you started to some some lighthouses would have underwater bells hmm. that would be uh, placed around the area to warn ships of of hazards. So ships could actually listen as they approached land, and if they heard bells, they knew they were coming up on shoals, and they could they could alter their course before running aground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, in around 1916, uh, yep. was an early passive sonar system. We'll explain what that means uh, in a minute. But uh, they were using strings of microphones towed by ships, which is, again, something that dates up to the present in a different form. Uh, but by 1918, um, and of course, thinking back on it, that's you know World War One. Right. Uh, the British and uh, American scientists had developed an, an active sonar system. Um, you know that that was a big concern at the time because, of course, the uh, German. Uh, 
U-boats right. were patrolling, and it was uh, some scary stuff. Yeah, actually, you know, it, it was a, it was a very intimidating weapon. Definitely. I mean, it's, there had been some. Sorry, I keep cutting. No, you no, off. please. So there had been submarines before that, but sure. But the uh, the German U-boats in World War One were uh, a very effective way of uh, uh, taking uh, control of the Atlantic Ocean, right. And the shipping back yeah. and forth between the continents. So uh, sonar was something that they were uh, very rapidly trying to work out. Exactly, and uh, it's funny because well, not funny, but it's. It's interesting to me that mm-hmm. really the the event that kind of started all this off wasn't World War One because by then they they were no, pretty far no. into it. Uh, but they to, did have an interest. <laughs> yes, yes. To talk about to talk about how this really started off, you really got to look back to a certain event that happened in 1912. Oh, really? And what was that event? Well, there was a little boat that happened to sink. Oh yes, yeah. that little boat. Yeah, uh, yeah. A, don't let go. Um, wow. My heart will go on. Stop it. Yeah, the Titanic disaster. Titanic disaster in 1912. Uh, following that, that's when we saw the first patent for underwater echo ranging device. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was that was where the the first patent was filed, um, and it was filed at the British Patent Office by Lewis Richardson, who was a meteorologist, um, and he he had come up with this idea of creating a way to locate objects underwater using sound you would you would fire sound out uh you would measure the sound that comes back and through that you would figure out uh what was there how far away it was whether it was moving or not mm-hmm. i mean these were all the concepts now back in 1912 they didn't really have a way of of achieving this he he patented the idea but it wasn't until like Chris said, around 1918, that we started to really see accelerated development because then you had a wartime use for it, and mm-hmm. it was really important to find a way to de- to detect those submarines, those U-boats. Yeah, icebergs were uh, were obviously a concern, especially in the North Sea and yeah. areas like that, um, yeah, because they- you know. As the, as is in the case of many cliches, there is an element of truth in it. The tip of the iceberg really is, you know, the smallest right part, and so much of it is underwater, and you can't tell without some kind of device. And I think that's uh, yeah. The earliest the earliest sonar or the earliest echolocation devices. Uh, were not very precise. In fact, they were so imprecise that they could tell you that there was an iceberg, but could not tell you where the iceberg was. So right. you you might know that there's an iceberg somewhere within a two-mile radius of your ship, which is not entirely helpful, although I guess it tells you to keep an eye out mm-hmm. so that you you don't see it just before you hit it. You know you, you, you know to keep an eye out for uh, for icebergs. Mm-hmm. Um by the by, the time World War II came around, mm-hmm. that's when uh, the because early sonar was really led by the British. Mm-hmm. They made the biggest advances in sonar technology. They didn't call it sonar; they called it ASDIC, A S D I C. And uh, it, the ASD was actually a code. It was it was so that the people outside of the top secret development wouldn't know what the scientists were working on. Right. So people say, well, what does ASDIC stand for? Well, it kind of stands for keep your nose out of it, mister. (laughs) Uh, So it wasn't really until World War II that the United States actually outpaced the British in this technology. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And that's when, you know, the, the term sonar started to pop up, and that eventually became the de facto term for the technology. Right, right. Now, we should probably, uh, at this point, uh, go into the two basic, very, very, very basic types of sonar. So active and passive. Active and passive. All right. And then, I think passive is the easiest one to explain. Yes. Basically, you're receiving 
the sounds of the water around you. Yeah, you're listening. Yes, you're so, simply listening. So passive uh, passive sonar is where you have some sort of sound collection device, mm-hmm. usually a hydrophone, which is just a, a microphone that you can use in the water. Right. You would have hydrophones placed, and you may have a couple of different uh, passive sonar stations so that you have hydrophones directed in, in specific Areas so that way you can tell where the sound is coming from, not just that there is sound. Right. And you listen carefully for uh, any kind of indication of other activity uh, in the water. And um, it's interesting because uh, as I was doing my research, I discovered that that if you were a trained sonar operator, yes, and you heard a submarine. Let's say you're in a submarine and you heard another submarine. Right. You could actually identify where that submarine was uh, was from based upon the sound you heard. Yes, that it, is correct. It is that is to me is phenomenal. Well, every uh, as I understand it, every uh, ship of any kind, submarine or ship or you know, I guess boat, depending on what's on the boat, has its own uh, audio signature. Uh, could be the engines um, or basically anything that's going on. If there are electronics on board that make a, na- a noise, if you know fans, things like that, some those things can help identify um, another vessel in the water to the listening vessel. Yeah, for example, in the United States, most of the submarines were operating on a 60 hertz alternating current power system. Mm -hmm. But in Europe, they were uh, operating on 50 hertz power systems. So just the the frequency of the sound would be enough to indicate to you whether you were listening to a a U.S. ship or a European ship. Right. And... uh, you couldn't necess- if everything was running the way it should you might not hear anything at all or mm-hmm. you might hear very little um it was if you didn't soundproof all of your equipment like if if the various elements weren't uh weren't insulated properly mm-hmm. then stuff would rattle and you could you could actually hear the rattling in fact uh one source i read said that uh you know the location of a submarine might be given away by someone accidentally dropping a wrench mm-hmm. onto the 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 floor Yep. The deck, I guess. Um, I assume there are decks in submarines. I've never been aboard one. Yes, I believe there are. So, yes, if you were to drop a wrench to the deck, it, w- it would, could create a sound that someone, another sonar operator, might be able to pick up and say, all right, they're they're to port. Yep. Um, yep. So it, it it's a pretty interesting thing. And passive sonar, by the way, was more important for submarines uh, because if they use the active method, mm-hmm. they would actively be giving away their location. Yes, that's because active uh, active sonar systems are giving off a uh, pulse of sound. Yeah, often called a ping. Yes. So you ping the sound out, and uh, and then they wait for the the sound waves to come back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And based upon how long it takes uh, and how much how strong the signal is, that's how you kind of determine what it is you're you're hearing or you know how far away the 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 object is and you know what it might be. Yep. How many uh, how many submarine movies have you seen where they do that tense moment where nobody's moving a muscle? They go, "Wait, wait." You know, and there's this like you know you watch the beads of sweat roll down the yeah. submariners' faces. Yes, there's the um, there's the one that I quoted at the beginning of this podcast. Hmm. Um, yeah, no, no, they, but there are many. You know, right. that's that that and that's the thing is you have to be very very quiet in that kind of a situation because any little thing can and, be picked up by the ping. And here's what's really interesting uh, to me is that the the ping is I mean, well really 
Anything could be picked up by passive sonar. I know. I just wanted to make it nice. rhyme. Okay, I got you. So I was about so to say, ignore I wanna, that. It I was just for the rhyme. Before we get email, it was just for the rhyme. I'm so, sorry. So active, but with the it wasn't active, wasn't a rhyme of an ancient mariner. <laughs> he stoppeth one of three. The active uh, sonar. Uh, the basis of that really rests in the fact that we know how fast sound travels through water. Ah, but do we? We do, but it's really complicated. You would think, oh, it's got to be some constant, right? Not exactly. Actually, it's not constantly the, constant. Yeah, the 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 speed of sound traveling through water depends on several things. Mm-hmm. It depends on the temperature of the water, the salinity of the water, and the depth of the water. Yes, and all of these things affect the density of the water, which makes sense, right? If you've mm-hmm. got more molecules packed together, sound's going to travel faster through that because right. the molecules hit each other more quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't take much for a molecule to run into another molecule. The sound travels much much further and much faster. Um, if you've got them spread out, then they lose some of their energy as they are moving, and so it doesn't travel as far, and it doesn't travel as quickly. Mm-hmm. So the rule of thumb is that it's 4,388 feet per second, and then you have to add all these modifiers in. Right, right. Now, there are some some things that you can do. Uh, there is a system uh, that I read about, the ANBQH-1 Speed of Sound Measuring System, which is you know, a modern sonar system. Sure. Um, but uh, it evaluates the depth and temperature and salinity of the water to get an idea of how the speed of sound is going to travel through that particular water at right. the time. Um, obviously, that's probably a very expensive piece of equipment because it's doing those calculations for you, but that's what modern computing technology gets you. Um, but yeah, it, it gives you, uh, you know, sonar technicians can use that equipment to get an idea of what's going on with a lot better accuracy and uh, also helps them avoid being detected by other sonar equipment right. because they have an idea of you know, what's the, the current conditions are underwater where they are. Right. So if you're using active sonar, you might be using it for, uh, well, if, if in wartime, you would have ships and, and even aircraft using active sonar to try and detect submarines and then drop depth charges down to, to disrupt the submarines. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so active sonar in wartime is often used by, by vessels that can move fast enough so that it's not it's not a big deal about giving away your location. Like destroyers, for example. Exactly. Exactly. If you're a submarine, you don't tend to use active sonar as often. Um, yeah, especially when you're submerged and trying to avoid detection, because that's you can't move nearly as quickly as uh, the enemy destroyers are coming after you. Right. So, so if you're also you could be using uh, active sonar not just in wartime, but also if you're mapping the ocean floor. Ah, yes. Then you want you want to be as accurate as possible, which means you have to have, you know, you have to factor in all those elements we were talking about before the salinity and temperature and depth and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you're just using sonar as a fish finder, because there are plenty of of uh, products on the market that do that, you don't have to worry quite. That level of accuracy, because you're not you're usually not talking about the same kind of distances involved that we're talking about, mm-hmm. and uh, usually the you know the depth is not as big a factor. Mm-hmm. So really, in that case, uh, you know you could use a constant speed for the sound through water and not be so inaccurate. I mean, you're looking for schools of fish; right. they're going to be moving around anyway. So it's not like it's um, it's not like like the kind of precision work you need to do with these other elements. Right. Actually, that that's one of the things that I uh, found fascinating is during part of the uh, the sonar technicians training, they actually uh, 
are known to record things that are just natural sounds. Right. Like the sounds of fish. Um, Tectonic plates. <laughs> I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what kinds of sounds those give off. Uh, l- really loud, low groaning ones. Yes, kind of like uh, my back. But that's, but that's the the uh, the trick is you once they understand what those things are, they can eliminate them. They go, oh well, that's just a large school of fish, right? You know, oh that's you know an alien spaceship that's crashed underwater, that kind of stuff, right? Um, I make a joke, but no, that 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 uh, I was wondering about that when I was reading about civilian uses for sonar technology and I was thinking well how do they know you know what is a school of fish and obviously if you're on a lake and it's it's probably going to be the stuff that's moving around underwater it's not likely to be an enemy submarine yeah but you know fi- detecting a fish versus you know a snake or some other type of uh, Loch Ness monster yeah <laughs> we've gotten very silly very quickly well but- no i mean people have been using that kind of equipment to try and determine whether or not Seriously? there are creatures. Yeah, sonar equipment. Yes, there are plenty of monster hunters who have tried to use sonar, like a fish finder. Yeah, essentially. But okay. that's the thing is that right. there are, there are schools of fish in Loch Ness and schools of eels oh, sure. as well in Loch sure. Ness. So you get a school of fish or a school of eels that's going to give you a reading, and then people say, "Hey, look, there's a monster down there." Not necessarily. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, I've, I've mentioned before in the podcast that I'm a skeptic. Uh, out of all the things to be skeptical about, the mm-hmm. Loch Ness Monster was the one I held on to the longest because I want to believe it's real. I don't believe it's real, but I want to so badly. <laughs> um, in a cottage on the shore, there's a shadow on the door. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, different kinds of sonar, like okay. side scan sonar. Okay. Um, this is a device used to find uh, objects on the seafloor and figure out what they are. Uh, they usually have a tow fish or a tow body, which is a, um, basically a sophisticated device that goes in the water and is towed behind the ship, and uh, a device that processes the signals on the top. Um, what happens is the, they use the... Uh, the sound energy, which is transmitted in a fan-shaped pattern, and uh, goes about 100 meters down or so. Um, basically, they use the information that comes back to create a an image of what's on the sea floor. So if they get a really strong signal um, back, that appears as a light image on the screen, mm-hmm. whereas a weaker signal would show darker images. So gotcha. you get an, uh, a, a, sort of a black and white image. I don't know if it's actually black and white uh, because I was reading copy and they didn't have a photo. Br- but might be bright green and dull green. Right, right. But you can get an idea of what the the, uh, the bottom of the uh, area you're looking at. I guess it could be a lake or the ocean. Um, they, don't, they don't offer the same kind of depth information as the military would use to say, oh, well, we, you know, we're about to run aground. It's not the same kind of right. application of sonar. Also, we should add that it, at certain depths, once you get really, really deep, the water mm-hmm. gets so dense that it can refract sound waves. So mm-hmm. you, you start to lose the ability to really map the ocean floor with sound because uh, uh, the, the, the water itself is so dense that it's, it's, it's mucking things up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, I guess I should go ahead and mention as well, we've talked a lot about the sonar. The sonar really has three main elements to it. Oh, yes. There's mm-hmm. a transmitter which transmits the sound. Oh, right, right. right. We can't believe we didn't cover Yeah, we didn't early. really talk about it. But there's a transmitter. That's that's what passes on the signal. 
uh, it, it's an electric signal that goes to a transducer. Now, transducers, what they do is they convert one kind of energy into another kind of energy. Mm-hmm. In the case of sonar, it's converting sound, uh, electricity rather into sound. Right. Uh, active for this is for active sonar clearly, and then uh, you've got a receiver that receives the signals when they come back, um, and and then you usually have a display. So yeah, there's a transmitter, transducer, and receiver. This is for again active uh, sonar. With the passive sonar, you just need receivers, really microphones, hydrophones, right? Um, and and there are plenty of stationary uh, sonar uh, uh, stations, mm-hmm. I guess <laughs> stationary stations. Thank you, Jonathan. You're both repetitive and redundant. But at any rate, there are plenty of these in the ocean. The the lots of different militaries have them sta- stationed at different uh, spots along the coast mm-hmm. to detect things like uh, possible incoming submarines, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to mention very quickly about an interesting sound that was detected. Oh, do you want to? Yes, okay. I do. I definitely want to. Okay. Uh, there was a sound detected in 1997. It was actually detected several times over the summer of 97 uh, in the Pacific Ocean uh, by uh, by a hydrophone array. Mm-hmm. And the sound was a very low frequency sound generated over uh, a pretty extended uh, time frame. Uh, several, I think it was several minutes long. And it's called the bloop. Aha. Uh-huh. The bloop is um, this odd sound that that we're not really sure what made this noise. If it was organic, then it would have to be a creature larger than any that we've previously identified. So if it were a whale, it would have to be such an enormous whale that we've never seen it uh, ever. Yeah. So It'd be, by, be ginormous. Right. To use the technical term, yeah. it's more likely that the bloop is a um, uh, was some sort of geological byproduct, right? But at any rate, the okay. sound was located, or the the location of the sound is probably somewhere around fifty degrees south, hundred degrees west. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting to Lovecraftian fans, I knew you were going there, is that that's not that far off from the supposed. The coordinates of Rillie, which is Cthulhu's city mm-hmm. of the deep. So some people have jokingly, tongue in cheek, said that this noise was dead Cthulhu snoring. <laughs> because in his house in Rillie, dead Cthulhu lies dreaming. All right, then. Uh, and also, let's, um, we can actually play the sound. So what we're going to do here is we're going to just take a second. We're going to play the sound. This is a sound that's off of uh, the, the U.S. government's uh, websites, and it is specifically the sound sped up 16 times. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that was Cthulhu. I was pretty certain it was a bunch of people flushing all at the same time. Could have also been that. It might have been during the Super Bowl. No, wait, <laughs> it was the summer of 97, so it couldn't have been. I don't know anything about sports, but even I know it doesn't happen in the summer. All right, World Cup. Maybe it was World Cup. Maybe it was the World Cup. Except that wouldn't have been a... Anyway. No, it wouldn't have been a World Cup year. Okay. <laughs> So our speculation goes awry. Also, we had someone on uh, Facebook, I think, ask us about the bloop. So yes. There that goes. Yes. That goes out to you, random Facebook person. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, I did look up some other interesting related technology like LIDAR, which is a light, detecti- light detection and ranging 
system. It doesn't use sound. It uses light. Uh, oh. But it is used, uh, bathymetric LIDAR is used to determine the depth of water. Um, it uses lasers, pulses of lasers sent out at two frequencies. Um, there's an infrared pulse, which is a lower frequency, and that reflects off the surface. So you know where the surface of the water is. And then it uses green lasers that have a higher frequency that reflects off the bottom of the area. Interesting. And it, it works pretty similar to echolocation because it's getting a reading for the top and the bottom of the depth. Hmm. So you get an idea of how deep the water is. And they use this um, uh, from aerially, generally. Uh, oh, wow. From, uh, they're mounted on aircraft. Um, so uh, according to NOAA, and I, I mean the National uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, not the guy with the big boat. That's the second time you've made that joke on this pod. Not this particular episode, but in the series. Yeah, well, you know. Uh, but yeah, and depending on how clear the water is, they can uh, determine depths up to 50 meters. And this is really useful for those uh, really hazardous areas mm-hmm. uh, where it might be difficult to get a reading from a, uh, a vessel, a waterborne vessel, could be a dan- ship or a it boat. It would be dangerous to put a ship there yes, because exactly. of reefs and shoals and that sort of thing. Which is exactly why you'd want to know what it's like you know, underneath the, right, the surface right. of the water so you can get an idea for navigation purposes. I mean, really, sonar, uh, just I don't mean to interrupt, but the reason why sonar was so important early on is because light does not travel through water very well. Yes. Like just normal light. And, you know, you go down just a couple hundred feet and it's it gets dark really fast. And anybody who's swum in the Atlantic Ocean knows that it's not exactly the clearest water. Uh, so it would be especially difficult to see in, in, in a water with a lot of salinity and uh, turbidity. And, of course, if you get it at pretty intense depths, then you don't want to have any windows in your device at all. True enough. <laughs> because the pressure is too great. Um, before we get to the next segment, sure. I was going to mention, too, that you can uh, you can actually use sonar from uh, 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 you know from the air as well. Yes. If you are using a sauna buoy. Uh, which is basically a buoy that is equipped with sonar equipment that is lowered, I guess, by a helicopter would probably be the best. Uh, that's where I've actually seen it done. Right, right. Uh, where they lower it into, uh, you know, so that sur- floating on the surface of the water that they can get readings um, from anything that might be in the area. Yeah, which that's is pretty cool. That's often used in, in wartime as well because it, it's a way for, you know, you, you send a helicopter out to the general region where you believe there's a submarine. You mm-hmm. use these to try and locate the submarine. Then you use the depth charges, which are really just explosives that, that sink in into the water before exploding, mm-hmm. um, and then try to uh, to damage or uh, or disrupt the submarine in some way. Mm-hmm. Whereas the submarine is trying desperately to, uh, or the people in the submarine anyway are trying desperately to avoid detection. Or That's you right. know sometimes they'll use things like um, uh, decoy explosions. So you create enough. Uh, noise in the water, and it becomes very difficult to pinpoint a specific object. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you wanted to discuss that uh, it's not all the sonar is not all necessarily beneficial; that it could actually have a negative impact on the environment, right? Yeah. Or actually, the creatures living in the environment. More. We mentioned that that whales and dolphins use echolocation in order to navigate their environments. Um, sometimes there there have been reports that that. The low frequencies used in sonar equipment mm-hmm. have uh, disrupted the, their this marine life. Mm-hmm. That in some cases there may be uh, instances where it has spooked a pod of whales, for example. Mm-hmm. And in, and so uh, there there are some studies that suggest that some whales are suffering from a, a kind of um, uh, 
well, sort of a pressurization sickness because well, they're surfacing so quickly that they are uh, – it's kind of like whales getting the bends. Yeah, actually, it's exactly like whales getting the bends because uh, the report I saw uh, was actually from a, uh, a UK organization called Marine Connection, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, pro-water um, uh, life Organization, and they um, they had cited a study from the magazine Nature from 2003, which uh, was citing an instance in which uh, ten beaked whales uh, surfaced too quickly off the Canary Islands mm-hmm. um, in 2002, and and they they got the bends. The whales got the bends, and the, apparently the situation is uh, especially prominent for deep diving animals, yeah. such as a beaked whale. Mm-hmm. And it may be related to the terrain uh, underneath the water. If it's a really steep, um, sharp drop-off, that may affect the way that the uh, the sound waves are traveling underwater and may be especially confusing. Um, Noah also uh, mentioned that there might be problems for uh, deep-diving species, uh, but said that uh, more study needs to be done on on uh, these kinds of strandings to find out if it's limited to the surroundings, if it actually is the, the sea floor that is playing into it, or whether it is strictly the sonar itself, you know, before they can make a decision as to what's going on. But the uh, Marine Connection has uh, asked the... Uh, um, they actually gotten in- involved and suggested to the European Parliament, and it asked for a ban on high-intensity sonar in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there there are concerns that it may cause uh, some some harm. Basically, that they can swim into uh, dangerous terrain too. It, that is also an issue if they're they're momentarily confused, but in dangerous waters, that could right. be long enough for there to be a serious problem. Right. So yeah, there there are some concerns about this technology, which you know we've been using for almost a, a century now mm-hmm. uh, regularly. And, and yeah, and we're still. Some of them, like the passive systems, of course, that's not a problem because the passive mm-hmm. systems, all they're doing is listening. They're not right. sending out any signals. So not all sonar is bad sonar, even from a marine life standpoint. Oh, no, it's still a, an incredibly useful technology. Right. You just have to learn how to use it responsibly so that you're not causing you know, harm to the environment or to marine life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in particular. Well, I, I guess that pretty much wraps up a discussion on sonar. This was one of uh, Paulette's uh, pet... pet uh, Topics. He's, he likes the um, the topic as well. I think the video series brought that out. Yeah, it did. We had our radar and sonar moments. So uh, that was a lot of fun. If you guys have any suggestions for topics, stop by on Facebook or Twitter and let us know. Our, uh, our handle there is techstuffhsw. Or you can use the old-fashioned method of sending us an email. That's techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. If you're a Tech Stuff fan, be sure to check us out on Twitter. Tech Stuff HSW is our handle, and you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash techstuffhsw. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. 
You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 